Chapter 12 of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan McKenzie. John Dean of Toronto. A Comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter 12. James Blake stood in the bows of the Toronto, gazing down at the long cigar-shaped object that lay like a huge gray cocoon reposing in her bowels. The morrow would see the destroyer floated out to carry her three hundred-odd feet of menace into the blues and grays of the ocean. Blake was a man upon whom silence had descended as a blight, heavy of build, slow of thought, ponderous of movement, he absorbed all and apparently gave out nothing. His most acute emotion he expressed by fingering the right-hand side of his ragged beard, whilst his eyes seemed to smolder as his thoughts slowly took shape. As he gazed down at the gray shape of the destroyer's hull, there was in his eyes a strange look of absorption. For nearly two years he had lived for the destroyer, it had been his wife and family to him, home and holiday, labor and recreation, food and drink. Nothing else mattered, because nothing else was. The war existed only in so far as it was concerned with the destroyer. It was the mice and scene for this wonder boat. It was to be her setting, just as a stage is a setting for a play. As he gazed down at her, he fumbled in the pocket of his pilot jacket and drew forth a cigar, one of a box that John Dean had sent him. Slowly and deliberately, he pulled out his jackknife, cut off the end, and taking a good grip of the cigar with his teeth, lighted it, all without once raising his eyes from the destroyer. As he puffed clouds of smoke for the breeze to pick up and scurry off with to the west, he thought lovingly of the work of the last two years, of the last month in particular. Never had men worked as had James Blake and his boys. It was not for country or for gain that they slaved and sweated. It was not patriotism or pride of race that caused them to work until forced, by sheer inability, to keep awake to lie down for a few hours' sleep, always within sound of their comrades' hammers, often beside the destroyer herself. It was the boss for whom they worked. They were his men, and this was their boat. Every time John Dean wrote to Blake, there was always a message for the boys. I know the boys will show these Britishers what Canada can do, he would write, or see that the boys get all they want and plenty to smoke. Remembering was John Dean's long suit, and his men would do anything for the boss. Blake had not spared himself. When not engaged in the work of overseeing, he had thrown off his coat and worked with the most vigorous. He seemed never to sleep or rest. Every detail of the destroyer's construction he carried in his head, Plans that had been in his shack, but what were the use of plans to a man who had every line, 
every bolt and nut engraved upon his brain. He had them merely for reference. And now all was ready. That morning the destroyer had been floated into the Toronto to see that everything on the mothership was in order. Once floated out again, there remained only the taking on board stores and munitions. These lay piled upon the Toronto's deck, ready at the word of command to be transferred to the destroyer. In design, the destroyer was very similar to the latest form of submarine. 310 feet 6 inches in length, she had a breadth of 26 feet 6 inches amidships, tapering to a point fore and aft. She carried two ordinary torpedo tubes and mounted two 3-inch guns, but these were in the nature of an auxiliary armament. Her main armament consisted of eight pneumatic tubes, two in the bows, two in the stern, one on either bow, and one on either beam. These fired small arrow-headed missiles, rather like miniature torpedoes, fitted with lance heads for cutting through nets. They had sufficient power to penetrate the plates of a submarine and were furnished with an automatic detonator which caused the bursting charge to explode three seconds after impact. The charge was sufficient to blow a hole in the side of a U-boat large enough to ensure its immediate destruction. These projectiles were rendered additionally deadly by the fact that their heads became automatically magnetic as they sped through the water. Thus, the target against which they were launched achieved its own destination. They were fitted with small gyroscopes to keep them straight until the magnetic heads began to exert a dominating influence. Amidships was the conning tower, with its four searchlights, so arranged as to be capable of being used singly or together. Thus, it was possible to illuminate the waters for half a mile in every direction. Above the conning tower were two collapsible periscopes, and beneath it the central ballast, beneath which lay the charge of TNT that John Dean had boasted would send the destroyer to kingdom come should she ever be in danger of capture. Abaft the conning tower were the engines, a switchboard, and finally the berths of the engine room staff. Forward of the conning tower were the berths of the crew, and still further forward were those of John Dean and the officers. John Dean's invention of a new and lighter storage battery had enabled him to control the destroyer entirely by electricity. She possessed an endurance of 1,500 miles, and as for the most part she held a watching brief. This would mean that she could remain at sea for a month or more. Her speed submerged was 14 knots, which gave her a superiority over the fastest German craft, and she could remain submerged for two days. She could then recharge her compressed air chambers without coming to the surface by means of a tube, through which fresh air could be sucked from the surface and the fowl discharged. These were weighted and floated in various parts in such a manner that they could be thrown out in a diagonal direction. The object of this was to protect the destroyer from depth charges in the event of her whereabouts being discovered by an enemy ship, which would render it dangerous for her to come to the surface. 
The destroyer's a submarine, John Dean had remarked, and submarines fight and live underwater and not on it. Consequently, in designing the destroyer, he had first considered the special requirements entailed by the novelty of the methods she would employ. She had deck guns, periscopes, and torpedo tubes, but they were in every sense subsidiary to those qualities that rendered her unique among boats capable of submerging, viz. her searchlights and her magnetic projectiles. Underwater, there were only two dangers capable of threatening her, mines and depth charges. Properly handled and without mishap, there was no reason why she ever returned to the surface except in the neighborhood of her own harbor. Her most remarkable device, however, was the microphone, so sensitive that with the aid of her searchlights, it would enable the destroyer to account for any U-boat that came within seven or eight miles of where she was lying. As Blake stood surveying his handiwork, he was joined by his second-in-command, Jasper Quinton, known among his intimates as Spotty, a nickname due to the irregularity of his complexion. Quinton was an Englishman who had gone to Canada to make his fortune as a mining engineer. Soon after war broke out, he had successfully applied to John Dean for a job, and had acquitted himself so well that John Dean had taken him into his confidence in regard to the destroyer and Jasp, as he called him, had proved a cinch. John Dean made few mistakes about men and none about women. The one he understood, the other he avoided. Spotty Quint on spat meditatively upon the hull of the destroyer. He was a man to whom words came infrequently and with difficulty, but he could spit a whole gamut of emotions. Anger, contempt, approval, indifference, all were represented by salivation. If he were forced to speech, he built up his phrases upon the foundation of a single word, ruddy, but apparently with entire unconsciousness that it had its uses as an oath. To Spotty Quentin, John Dean was the ruddy boss, his invention of the ruddy destroyer, the enemy, the ruddy hun, the ocean, the ruddy water. He served out his favorite adjective with entire impartiality. He no more meant reproach to the hun than to John Dean. He tacitly accepted them both, the one as a power for evil, the other as a power for good. As Quinton silently took up a position by his side, Blake turned and looked at him interrogantly. Ruddy masterpiece, exclaimed Quinton, spitting his imagination. Blake gazed upon the unpossessing features of his subordinate, and tugging a cigar from his pocket, handed it to him. Silently, Spotty took the cigar, bit off the end, and spat it together with his thanks into the hold of the Toronto. He then proceeded to light the cigar. The two men turned and made their way to the cabin allotted to them as a sort of office of works. Both were thinking of the morrow when the destroyer would be floated out from the parent ship ready for her first voyage. In addition to John Dean and his second-in-command, 
she would carry Commander Riles, who had a distinguished record in submarine warfare. He would represent the Admiralty. John Dean had experienced some difficulty at the Admiralty over the personnel of the destroyer's crew, but he had stood resolutely to his guns, and the authorities had capitulated. This was largely due to Sir Bridgman North's wise counsels. When, he remarked, I have to choose between giving John Dean his head and being gingered up, I prefer the first. It's infinitely less painful. Sir Leicester had been inclined to expostulate with his colleague upon the manner in which he gave way to John Dean's commands. Sir Leicester felt the dignity of his office was being undermined by the blunt-spoken Canadian. Do you not think, he had remarked in the early days of the descent of John Dean upon the Admiralty, that it would be better for us to stand up to Mr. Dean? I think the effect would be salutary. For us, undoubtedly, Sir Bridgman had said dryly, personally, I object to being gingered up. Look at poor Blair. There you see the results of the process. He ceased to be an imperialist within twenty-four hours of John Dean's coming upon the scene. Now he goes about with a hunted look in his eyes and a prayer in his heart that he may get through the day without being gingered up by the unspeakable John Dean. I really think I shall have to speak to John Dean about, Sir Leicester had begun. Take my advice and don't, was the retort. Blair and John Dean represent two epochs. Blair is the British Empire that was. John Dean is the British Empire that is to be. It's like one of Nelson's old three-deckers against a super-dreadnought, and Blair ain't the dreadnought. He is certainly a remarkable man, Sir Leicester had admitted conventionally, referring to John Dean. He's more than that, Grain, said Sir Bridgman. He's the first genius patriot produced by the British Empire, possibly by the world, he added dryly, proceeding to light a cigarette. Think of it, he added half to himself. He could have got literally millions for his invention from any of the big naval powers, yet he chooses to give it to us for nothing. And what's more, he's not out for honors. Ginger or no ginger, John Dean's a man worth meeting. Grain, on my soul he is. Blake and Quentin seated themselves, one on either side of the little wooden table in the cabin of the Toronto, that answered as an office of works. Blake looking straight in front of him, Quinton absorbed in smoking and expectoration. Presently, Blake took from his pocket a large silver watch, gazed at it with deliberation, then raising his eyes nodded to his companion. With a final expectoration, Spotty rose and left the cabin, walked over to the starboard side, and climbed down into the motorboat that lay there manned by her crew of three. Without a word, the man with the boat hook pushed off, the motor was started, and the boat throbbed away to the entrance to the little harbor. The crew of the destroyer had learned from Blake the virtue of silence. For half an hour, the motorboat tore her way over the waters, heading due south. From time to time, Quinton gazed ahead through a pair of binoculars. Starboard, he called.
called to the helmsman as he lowered the glass from his eyes for the twentieth time. Then, by way of explanation, he added, The ruddy chaser. Steady, he added a moment later. A few minutes later, a cloud of white spray indicated the approach of a small craft traveling at a high rate of speed. Quinton continued to watch the approaching boat until the humped shoulders of a submarine chaser were distinguishable through the spume. As the boats neared each other, he gave a quick command to the engineer, and the speed of the motorboat decreased. At the same moment, the curtain of spray that screened the oncoming chaser died down, her fine and sinister lines becoming discernible. Dexterously, the helmsman brought the motorboat alongside the larger vessel, and without a word there stepped on board a little man wearing motor goggles and a red beard of rather truculent shape, and a naval commander whom the stranger introduced to Quinton as Commander Riles. With a nod to the man with the boat hook, and a wave of his arms to those aboard the chaser, James Grant took his seat together with Commander Riles beside Quinton. The motorboat pushed off, and with a graceful sweep, turned her nose northwards and proceeded to run up her own track. Grant and Quentin continued to talk in undertones, Grant asking questions, Quentin answering with great economy of words and prodigious salivation. The chaser, steering a southwesterly course, was soon out of sight. As the motorboat entered the little harbor, Grant's eyes eagerly fixed themselves upon the Toronto, seeming to take in every detail of her construction. Ready for the trial trip, he inquired of Quentin. Sure, was the reply as he spat over the side. Jim there? Quentin jerked his thumb in the direction of the Toronto for which the motorboat was making. As they reached her, the two men nimbly climbed up the side, and Quentin leading, dived below to the office of works. As they entered, Blake was sitting exactly as Quentin had left him an hour and a half previously. At the sight of Grant, his eyes seemed to flash, but he made no movement except to hold out his hand, which Grant gripped. Through with everything, he inquired as he seated himself, and Quentin threw himself on a locker. Sure, replied Blake. I, began Grant, then breaking off a cast a swift look over his shoulder. Blake nodded his head comprehendingly, whilst Quinton spat in the direction of the door as if to defy eavesdroppers. From his pocket, Grant drew a map, which he proceeded to unfold upon the table. Quinton walked across, and the three bent over, studying it with absorbed interest. Meanwhile, Commander Riles had been shown to his cabin. End of chapter 12, recording by Morgan McKenzie, Gallatin, Tennessee.